The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast. Casey Kasem, the voice of American Top 40, has gone missing. Where in the world is Casey Kasem? His children desperately search for their father, whom they believe... It's May 2014, and radio legend Casey Kasem, ailing with Louis body dementia, has disappeared. Snatched off into the night by his wife and youngest daughter against medical and legal orders. At this time, I'm... I'm... I'm beside myself. It's, he's vanished again. Where's my dad? It's a bizarre and unsettling turn of events for one of America's most beloved icons. A man who famously reached for the stars from the very beginning. I'm Martin Cove, and this is Bitter Blood, Kasem versus Kasem, Episode 2, Reaching for the Stars. I'm Casey Kasem. These are the hits you're buying, and radio stations are playing from coast to coast. Born Kamel Kasem in 1932 of Lebanese descent, Casey grew up in Detroit, Michigan. He and his family were proud to be Lebanese-Americans. But their American dream was a struggle. Years earlier in Lebanon, Casey's father, Eamon Kasem Kansal, was 54 years old when he met Helen Sifa, who was just 17. Helen's older brothers forced her into an arranged marriage. The plan was for Eamon and Helen to emigrate to the United States and start a family. So this man brought her to America Casey's first wife, Linda. And she had uh, Casey and his brother. And I'd love to say, and they lived happily ever after. (laughs) But they didn't. There were plenty of hard times, a lot of them, that shaped Casey. Shortly after the couple immigrated to Detroit, Casey was born. Then Helen had a second child. There was a manure before the manure that lived. There was another little brother called Manure, who Casey bonded with very much. Still talked about him. He was a baby when he died, like over just over a year, I think. Got pneumonia, and he died. Helen quickly got pregnant and gave birth to another boy. Once again, the couple named their son. Munir. But just as the Kasims were settling into family life in the States, Helen contracted tuberculosis, a deadly bacterial infection common around that time. His uh, mother was gone for two years in a sanatorium. He told me that he, his father couldn't take care of him, so he gave them to the neighbors where he had to sleep under the staircase. The man of the house was always angry to have him underfoot. 
and he was scared to death of the neighbor and also of his own father. He also told me that he learned how to read so he could write a letter to his mother. He really idolized his mother. He loved her so much. When Helen recovered, she left Eamon at a time when divorce was still very much taboo. Casey told his first wife, Linda, that they all ran away. Him, his brother, his mom, and his aunt, who was also forced into an arranged marriage. They finally landed in Flint, Michigan. Years later, Helen would find her true love story, marrying this time on her terms. Casey and Munir adored their stepfather, and he did them. We all love Fred. He was just a wonderful member of the family, and I thought of him as Casey's father. Although Casey no longer lived with his father, Eamon, they kept in close contact. His father's love and respect meant everything to him. As a teenager, Casey pursued his passion, acting. He often performed at the local Playhouse Theater in Detroit, and his family would always come to support him. He was acting in a play, had to be 40s or 50s, early 50s, and so his father and the housekeeper, who he thought was probably more than a housekeeper, I think her name is Margaret, they were in a car on the way to see Casey in the play. Casey's brother Munir was in the back seat. Their father didn't drive, and the housekeeper wasn't feeling well. Casey's brother Munir. And she wouldn't let me drive. She wanted to drive. On the way there, probably the, one of the biggest intersections in Detroit, she had a heart attack. And in having a heart attack, she stiffened, pushed out on the gas. We crossed through this whole area, didn't hit anything until we got to the curb and ran into people waiting for a bus and hit a steel pole right in the center. Casey sat with his father for four days in the hospital, praying for him to get better. He really needed something from his father that he did not get. And when his father died, he blamed himself. He shouldn't have invited them in the bad weather to come to the play. He was bereft. Haunted, Casey told his brother that while he was on stage performing, he could have sworn he heard his father. But my brother said, which would have been somewhere around that time, that he heard Dad laughing out in the uh, crowd that was watching the play. So when he, when he thought he heard him, he thought he was there. And that never happened. Devastated by his father's death, but determined to move forward, Casey threw himself into the dream of performing, turning his focus from acting to hosting radio shows. And we did radio shows that, for college kids, were pretty good shows. 
Chuck Olson met Casey in 1950 at Wayne University in Detroit. They were college kids chasing the same dream. Casey and I, the, some of the instructors were people from WXYZ, where the Lone Ranger, the Green Hornet, and the Challenge of the Yukon were all done. Those shows always originated in Detroit. The communists, made bold by months of small-scale raiding across the 38th parallel, had finally launched their undeclared all-out war of conquest. In 1950, the Korean War draft called up men between 18 and 35 for military service. Casey, Chuck, and their best friend, Les Martins, were drafted in 1952. This is Les. That gave him a new insight on greatness, a new dream dimension. He found radio as a disc jockey in Korea. From Korea, Casey wrote his mother and brother regularly. He promised to take care of them and, quote, Make it big. When we came back from the Army, we both worked as staff announcers at WJLB in Detroit, a station that did not know the meaning of the word format or playlist or demographics. We did an eight-hour stint at the controls, turning on mics for people in the studios adjacent to us, spinning records, doing call letters, doing commercials, doing newscasts, and occasionally getting to play disc jockey. He said that he participated in about every radio station in the town in one way or another. Adam Reeder, host of Professor of Rock and a biographer of Casey Kasem, says that Casey used his love of baseball and the Detroit Tigers to find his own announcing style. And then he moved over to WJBK uh, as a newsman. He told a story about how he fashioned his style after a baseball announcer in Detroit. You know who I borrowed from originally? Hmm. A baseball announcer, announcer in Detroit. And a former uh, championship uh, uh, batter from 1918 to 1919, Harry Heilman. Oh, Harry Heilman. Harry yeah, sure. Heilman told the greatest stories on radio mm-hmm. when the Tigers were playing, mm-hmm. and he could tell them over and over again year after year, and that never left my mind. So yeah. when I got into radio, I said, I want to tell stories like Harry Heilman. Is that right? Yeah. That's, that's what all happened. Huh? Yeah. That's, uh, that's why we have the long-distance dedication. That's right. We just got a, a letter in uh, our story in letter form. Huh? Right. Well, radio does it best. It tells stories. Sure. And, you know, you can, do, you can make anything as big as you want or as small as you want in radio. Casey worked his way up from Detroit to Buffalo, finally joining stations in northern and southern California. Chuck Olson. He moved on from the starving actor thing. He decided he was going to be a radio headliner. A star. He wanted to be a star. Why not? And to that end, while he was at a station in Oakland, he proceeded to lose 40 pounds in a very short time. And he gave up smoking three packs of Pall Malls a day to zero. A thin and now healthier Casey was ready for Hollywood. In 1963, he joined KRLA in Los Angeles and began to make a name for himself. The thing about Casey that was so unique is that he could, he just was able to have such a calming humility about him, but very exuberant at the same time. The way that he could tell a story 
was unlike anybody that I've ever heard up to this point. And I think that's what drew us in as listeners. Living in Los Angeles at 32 years old, Casey met 21-year-old Mike Kerb. The two would go on to create history together. But in the mid-60s, they were both struggling, rich and ambition only. Well, neither one of us were successful when we met. Uh, I had lost my apartment, and I was living in the janitor section of a building on the Sunset Strip where I had a small office. In 1970, their dreams aligned. Mike's startup company, Curb Records, exploded with hits. I think it was Burning Bridges by the Mike Curb Congregation. I think it might have been One Bad Apple by the Osmonds. But I had a couple of singles at the time. At the same time, Casey birthed an idea that would span five decades and counting. July 4th, 1970, Independence Day weekend, a music countdown show called American Top 40. Here we go with the Top 40 Hits of the Nation this week on American Top 40, the best-selling and most played songs from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from Canada to Mexico. This is Casey Kasem in Hollywood, and in the next three hours, we'll count down the 40 most popular hits in the United States this week, hot off the record charts of Billboard magazine for the week ending July the 11th, 1970. In this hour at number 30... I was on a call, and they, they needed sponsors for the first show. So I said, well, I'll sponsor it, and I'll do a little commercial where we can play part of the song. Actually, when they started in July 1970, the show was heard on seven radio stations. Pete Battistini authored two books on American Top 40. By middle of July of 1972, I believe they were on about 150 radio stations at that point in time. And the popularity of the program continued to snowball. Every year, they were adding more and more radio stations. In fact, by 1980, 1981, there were approximately a thousand radio stations that were carrying the show every weekend. Casey exuded grace on the air, tapping into universal emotions by creating the legendary long-distance dedication. What have you done for me lately? Up a notch to number five, Janet Jackson, who turns 20 years old next week. Her birthday's May 16th. This is American Top 40 in Hollywood. I'm Casey Kasem. Now we're up to our long-distance dedication. This one goes halfway around... His style of delivery impacted the next generation of iconic broadcasters, most notably Ryan Seacrest. I've learned a lot. I learned uh, a, a lot about um, respecting the artists, respecting the music, respecting the audience, the listeners, uh, really trying to visualize how people um, consume the chart and consume that show every weekend, where they are, what they're doing around the world. You know, he would talk to members of our armed service. And, and of course, he was just so good at storytelling with the long distance requests and dedications that would give me chills all the time. Now we're up to our long distance dedication. This is the feature that reminds us what popular music is all about. Songs helping us to express important feelings. Listen to this letter from a man in Mansfield, Ohio. He, he gave uh, a very personal presentation and, and some something like well he was he was actually talking like to one person and that would be you as the listener. Author Pete Battistini loved Top Forty so much he was featured in an article about his vinyl collection of the countdowns. I uh, actually sent the feature story to Casey and he 
in turn, once he received it, he called and he just wanted to acknowledge that he had seen it, that he read it. <laughs> and, and again, very a very personal type of individual. And he, he said, if you're ever out into the Los Angeles area, give me a call. <laughs> well, it didn't take too long for me to make those arrangements. And my wife and I traveled to Los Angeles and we visited with Casey. We actually met him at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and uh, we had breakfast together. And we, we sat and actually talked for about two hours. You know, how many, how many national, international celebrities will actually take time to meet with an individual, a fan of, of their work? My name's Casey Kasem, reminding you to keep your feet in the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Casey's signature sign-off is what stayed with listeners long after his countdown ended. Again, biographer Adam Reeder. I remember that he said that he didn't want to get like mushy at the end of his final episode. He said he just didn't want to say goodbye, but he said, and I quote, he said, every station I was at, I never said goodbye. When I was in Detroit, Cleveland, Buffalo, Oakland, and L.A., he said, I don't know why. But there was an inspirational intent behind that weekly sign-off. said something to the effect of, it's a wonderful thing when someone tells me that they know exactly what the expression means, what they get from the message. In the early 70s, Casey was soaring to the top of everyone's playlist, but he was focused on one fan in particular, a woman he met on a movie set. The director gave himself a birthday party and it was raining like crazy. I lived in Westwood. The party was in Los Feliz, and I almost didn't go. But I thought, oh, that poor Tony, I better go. So I went, and Casey was there. He was one of the stars of the movie. And uh, his co-star was Bruce Dern. And it was a movie called The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant. <laughs> So we had met briefly on the set, did not know each other. So we got to know each other in that party, which ended up being just five or six people. And Casey said, and now I realize I was so silly, I believed this. He said, I, I really don't think you should drive alone in the rain. So let me take you, let, let me just follow you. I'll follow you. Oh, well, that's okay, but I have to stop at my apartment and get, I had to stop, and, and I thought, well, you know, I'm not coming in. <laughs> so he convinced me to go in, but he, I guess he got that I was the most naive person in the world at that point. So he, after that, he just followed me home. That was it. And about a week later, he called, he said, you know, I thought I might come to Westwood for a movie. You're welcome to join me. So romantic. <laughs> That's how it went. And then we just got closer and closer. Casey was smitten with Linda, a thin, petite redhead with long, flowing hair, piercing hazel eyes, and porcelain skin. She was high energy and already deep in political activism just like Casey. The two quickly moved in together. We got a 
beautiful house up in the Hollywood Hills. Um, the front of the house, from the front, you could see the city. From the back, you could see the entire valley. And it was cantilevered over the mountain. So if you had a baby uh, who could crawl out the slats of the railing, uh, forget it. So I, <laughs> after a year and a half of living together, I got pregnant. In 1972, Carrie was born. Carrie, of course, came on a night that he was... Uh, back then, they did American Top 40. It took all night to record it, and lots of temper tantrums, all that stuff. So when I called to say the baby's coming, Don Bastani said to me, Linda, do you think you could wait just a minute, just maybe a, an hour or two? <laughs> I'll try, Don. But then my friend Sherry took me to the hospital, and Casey joined me after the show. Casey and Linda went on to have two more children after Carrie, Mike in 1973 and Julie in 1975. Casey's friend, Mike Kerb. I thought Casey and Linda had an incredible marriage. We saw the birth of incredible kids. He even said he named his son after me. I was very flattered that Casey wanted to name his son after me. I, I also wanted to make sure I lived up to that until the very end. As Casey settled into fatherhood, his career was booming. He's been called the most listened to voice in America. In addition to hosting Top 40, he was doing commercials and voiceovers and eventually became the quote, voice of NBC. Pick up your line and we are rolling. Take one. Give me the line feed. Scoob, it's up to you to follow their trail. But it was shaggy from the mega-hit animated show Scooby-Doo that became Casey's most iconic voiceover role. Scooby, oh buddy, old friend, old pal, where are you? Casey Kasem brought a vulnerability to the role of Shaggy, an endearing quality. Kevin Sandler, a professor of film and media at Arizona State University, is writing a book on the legacy of Scooby-Doo and its cultural impact. Someone who was born in 1969. That was the same year that Scooby-Doo premiered, and it was the year before America's Top 40 premiered. I listen to Casey Kasem every weekend, and I still have the cassette tapes for recording Casey Kasem's shows that I would play during the week when a new show wasn't there. What I didn't know is that the other show that I was watching on the weekend Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? also featured Casey Kasem. Casey frequently used his voice and his status to advocate the causes near to his heart. When the longtime vegan saw the character of Shaggy being used to promote the meat industry, Casey took a hard stance. Casey had done the voice for Scooby-Doo for almost you know, three decades, and it was a Burger King commercial involving probably a Whopper in which Shaggy was endorsing that Casey just refused to do. Seems wrong to want to kill something that isn't trying to kill you. Casey stuck to his principles. He walked away from not just an iconic role, 
but a lucrative one. As a vegan myself, I find it highly admirable that Casey, in the middle of, you know, being the voice of Shaggy for many years, is willing to walk away on principle. The magnitude of Casey's popularity and success, coupled with his lovable portrayal of Shaggy, led the show's creators to finally make a change. Shaggy would become a vegetarian. God gave us this, this earth to live on and to share with other animals. Casey lived and breathed his vegan lifestyle. Casey was amazing. He would call me and talk to me and give me advice on what to do. James Zogby and Casey worked together closely for years on many humanitarian causes. They helped their friend Jesse Jackson during his presidential campaign in the early 80s. Jesse, as Jim Zogby has said, has made us winners. For the first time, many disenfranchised people who have never had an opportunity to go to the polls and know that their vote would count. We have the opportunity to vote for somebody who believes the way we believe for the first time in those who knows how long and how many years. James witnessed just how deeply rooted Casey's passion was. There was a funny moment there. We stayed together in the hotel, and there was one point where I was sort of a Saturday night live routine, except it wasn't. He was in the bathroom getting ready to go to bed, and, and he came out in his jockey shorts holding this book on, on, on the meat industry. And I, I remember in that Casey Kasem voice, which I cannot do and so won't even try to do, he came out and he said, Jim, this book's going to blow the fucking lid off the meat industry. And I just, the thought of Casey Kasem saying that and in his jockey shorts and, and, you know, as passionate as he was about everything. When James founded the Arab American Institute in the late 80s, Casey became its co-chair. And the way he did the top 40, he wanted to do the top 40 Arab Americans. He was so proud of his heritage and he wanted people to, to know who the great Arab Americans were and the contributions they'd made to America. While Casey understood the power of celebrity in elevating a cause, he often used his influence behind the scenes, off camera. He wasn't gentle and soft about his views, he was strong. In 1978, Mike Kerb was running for lieutenant governor of California as a Republican. Jerry Brown was governor. Ronald Reagan had just left office and was focused on his presidential campaign. An initiative came on the ballot from a Republican senator. If you can believe this, would have banned gay school teachers. Now, can you imagine uh, an initiative on the ballot that would ban gay school teachers, but the initiative believe it or not, was winning. And neither the Democrats or the Republicans were really speaking out against it. And one day, Casey and I were talking about it. He said, Mike, you have to take a position on that. This is real. He said, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. You you should take a position. I think we need all school teachers. We cannot ban people just because they're gay. I'm going to say, even if I'm the first one to do it, I'm going to say, I oppose this initiative. Like, wow. I mean, I didn't realize it. I don't think even Jerry Brown had had weighed in on it yet. Well, all of a sudden, I started getting calls from Reagan's people saying, Mike, what are you doing? And you're throwing it all away. 
Then Ronald Reagan himself asked to meet with Mike. I said, well, uh, I said to Ronald Reagan, I said, I remember when I first got involved with you, you know, you mentioned the importance of not having bad laws, laws that are going to be unconstitutional, laws that hurt people. You know, I said, I, it seems to me, you know, having been an actor for years, that as you've been and being a leader in the motion picture industry, it, this looks like it was a very bad law. The initiative was voted down. Mike was elected lieutenant governor and Reagan became president. Casey was the one who said to me, you need to go public and you need to say this. So I would give Casey credit for being the one who said, Mike, it's time to stand up. In the 1970s, Casey Kasem appeared to have it all. A massive career in entertainment, the power and influence to make real change, and children he adored, and who, in turn, worshipped him. But in 1979, that fairy tale came crashing down. His wife, Linda, stunned him with a bombshell. She wanted a divorce after seven years of marriage. Divorce was so abhorrent to him. It, I, I just, I'm just so sorry about so many things. The publicity, he was so upset when we were divorcing about people finding out and being tabloid fodder. He, he didn't think of himself that way. He thought of himself as a man of integrity. He said this, and, and this, to his mind, showed him in a different light. I saw how it started to fall apart a little bit. It was pretty painful. We used to go pick him up and, and take him, you know, take him out to dinner and encourage him to go home and go to, you know, he finally got an apartment. But it was a, a hard breakup, I'm sure, for everybody. But Casey went through quite a withdrawal there. So I think when that finally did end, when the divorce finally happened, I think like a lot of people, Casey was very vulnerable at that time. Less than one year later, the divorced father of three would meet the person who would alter the course of his life. During a visit to his agent's office, Casey was gobsmacked by one of the agency's assistants a 5'10", platinum-blonde, high-cheekboned, 25-year-old woman named Jean Thompson, an aspiring actress. All I can remember is that beautiful smile. She had a, a pink uh, a sweater on, a big turtleneck <laughs> on, and I just looked and I said, my goodness, she's beautiful, and I've got to at least now, talk Casey, to did her. You look Although Casey was 5 feet 7, he stood tall with his wit, perfectly white smile and boyish face, but it was his buttery voice that immediately commanded Jean's attention. I was growing up on Guam at the time, and we only had Armed Forces Radio over there. And I heard uh, this DJ come on, and he announced this record. And I went, oh my God, who is this guy? And he went, I'm Casey Kasem. There's just no question that he fell in love with Gene. I mean, everybody knows that. Everybody saw it. Everybody heard what he said. And no one knew how to quantify it because none of us were ever very close to her. 
Casey soared through the 80s and 90s using his voice to calm others. He became the most recognized voice around the world, an accomplishment he relished while always staying humble. I worked hard, and what I lacked in talent, what I lacked in experience, uh, I tried to make up for with hard work. He got a star on the iconic Hollywood Walk of Fame, and for decades remained one of the most influential figures at the center of pop culture. He predicted hip-hop before anybody ever predicted hip-hop and uh, so many other things. I don't know how he did it. I think he uh, just knew things. It was impossible to believe the man who was synonymous with American Top 40 could ever sign off from the show he created. From punk to hip-hop, from bubblegum to rock, we've been there counting them down. But then, a shock announcement in 2003 it's been a great 39 years, and it's really been an honor for me. Casey handed the reins over to Ryan Seacrest. The press reported he was passing the mantle down to a new generation. When we announced that I would take over the top 40, uh, he had spoken to me on the phone right around that time, and he was just so lovely and so gracious and complimentary as if he even knew, I mean, it's like, you know who I am? You've heard my voice? Uh, and I'll never forget how lovely he was. I have a tear. I, I actually have a tear in my eye. I have a tear in my eye because he was, he was my guy. He's the one I looked up to so much. And, um, you know, he will always be a legend in my mind. Every weekend when we do the American Top 40 and I get to the top, and I say, this week we've got a new number one. Or this week, the number one song in the USA is, and the timpani rolls. I, I always get chills, and I always picture Casey in my mind when I say it. And I almost get emotional telling you that. Throughout all the career highs, Casey struggled to maintain two separate lives, one with his first three children and one with his wife, Jean, and their daughter, Liberty. It was very painful for him over the time because obviously Jean didn't have the same feelings for the kids that Linda did. This was all very painful for Casey. The divide created tensions in the Kasem family. I've asked myself a hundred times if I knew what was going to happen. Would I have divorced him? I, I, no. I wouldn't have done that to my children. For more than 40 years, Casey Kasem had an almost psychic ability to predict trends in music and pop culture. But he could not foresee the trouble that was coming in his own future.
Our team of producers reached out repeatedly to Gene and Liberty Kasem to participate in this story. A lawyer for Gene told us this isn't a good time for Gene to speak. Liberty did not respond to our requests. Over the years, Gene has denied any allegations of abuse. 